Hello, and welcome back to Famous Last Words, a filmmaking podcast. And if you didn't catch it from our music, tis spooky season. Spooky season! Whoa! Well, congratulations for all of you that celebrate. Um, we Today we're talking about, as you may have noticed from the title of this episode, a wonderful little movie, the uh, first slasher film, a first slasher film, a slasher film. Yeah, one of the oh, early who ones. who are we? I'm Andrew. Oh, my goodness. All this Halloween fun. We forgot to introduce uh, I ourselves. I know. We're all hopped up on uh, candy corn. <laughs> I'm Teresa. And I'm Andrew. And we are the Aldens. Not related by blood. Of famous last words. Yep. So we're talking about the 1974 classic, granddaddy of them all, slasher film-wise, Black Christmas, directed by Bob Clark, starring uh, Olivia Husey and Keir Duwala. And uh, yeah, this is a movie that kind of invented... This movie has been imitated more times than you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we had we have never seen this one until just recently, um, but we wanted to see it because it's on all of the horror movie lists of you know one of the most influential horror films and then also like it's usually on those countdown of great horror scenes because it has like a really good it has a bunch of really good like kills and moments and scenes allegedly i think there's a few yeah yeah i mean we do we do need to do a spoiler alert for a uh, 50 year old movie spoiler alert okay all right all right um (laughs) So this movie is does a lot of things that had not been really done before, like POV of the killer and like the effect of the camera basically being carried by two people on either side, which was made famous by Evil Dead. Uh, there's a lot of these effects in this movie that were kind of done for the first time or in the most notable time, at least. And this movie directly influenced Halloween, John mm-hmm. Carpenter's Halloween. Um but yeah, you 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 did a deep dive into the trivia for this movie. What'd you learn? I, I looked some things up. Okay. <clears throat> um well just that it's it did inform a lot of slasher films to come. Um, like you said, the camera techniques, the storytelling, the sound design, um Yeah, and then also it it was probably pretty this was not in the trivia, this is my inference. It was probably pretty influenced by Cinema Giallo. Like, they were happening mm-hmm. at the same time. They do a lot of the same things. That was also, you know, like, Italian cinema inf- came over and, like, influenced American slasher films. So both, of like, Black Christmas was probably the first to sort of be similar to Italian Giallo. With, yeah. And then also kind of influence, you know, the ones we know now, like Halloween, Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th, all of them. Yeah. And so this one, like, the one thing I did read in the trivia was it was directly, it very much directly influenced Halloween to the point that Bob Clark and John Carpenter knew each other. They worked on some things together. And John Carpenter had asked him, you know, would you do a sequel? And he was like, yeah, I'd love to. 
you know, I had this idea about Halloween night where the killer who you don't really know who it ends up being ends up in a mental institution and then escapes on Halloween. Uh, and then that was kind of it. Sounds and that, familiar. <laughs> that was enough to like, you know, get the, the wheels turning in John Carpenter's head and made like one of the best slasher films of all time, Halloween. The best slasher film, in my opinion. In my opinion, too. Yeah, but we're not, we're, we'll maybe talk about John Carpenter in a future episode. <clears throat> Bob Clark is known for another Christmas movie, ironically. He's known for A Christmas Story, which came out only nine years after this one. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> which was really funny because we turned this film on and the opening credits is playing and it's like a house and it's very beautiful. The Christmas lights lit up. And I was like, man, this is exactly like the ending credits of a christmas story and then you were like yeah because it's bob clark and he did the christmas story right yeah <laughs> so i didn't even realize it at first which is so weird yeah i thought this movie it's this movie is like a lot of the movies like of the 70s horror movies of the 70s and it's a little bit in halloween but maybe it's more noble when it doesn't appear there's some really really poor acting <laughs> like Horror had, I read it, I was reading the book, uh, and, I'll, and I'll fact check it when you start speaking, but I was reading a history of horror book, and up until kind of Halloween, horror was also connected to some sort of campiness that was like more associated with the genre, like horror films that were more serious about what they were doing was connected to um, a European kind of cinema, like American horror films if you think about like Nosferatu or Phantom of the Opera, particularly, they're very, very different. They're both excellent examples of silent movies, but like there are parts of Nosferatu that are actually still scary to this day. And the thing with Phantom of the Opera is it's a little bit campy. And like Phantom of the Opera made under the studio system, Nosferatu made in Europe. And so there's this like American relationship to campiness that existed inside of horror films and that, that people like Bob Clark and John Carpenter grew up with this aesthetic. Like think of the Universal Monster movies. Those are all incredibly campy. Yeah. And, and, like they deal with serious themes with camp. You know? Yeah. Um, I agree with that. I think that in the mind of these young directors like Bob Clark and John Carpenter, there need to be a little bit of humor because that was part of the DNA of horror movies. And we only now know it, like looking back on a 50 year old movie. Now we re it really makes it stick out like a sore thumb because those slasher period movies changed our relationship to camp in the horror genre. Like there's still a little bit here and there, but widely, like if we think of like horror movies made today, like there is not, a ton of camp anymore there's just a little bit of comedy well no i disagree with that oh i i, I, I think the horror films we watch there's not a lot of camp i think there's a whole subgenre of like campy horror films out now that we just don't watch that much of i i don't know i comment we have a, we, have, we have found <laughs> we have found something we don't agree on um because i think like the most popular movies of the horror genre that are made right now are usually like the Conjuring universe movie, like The Nun and all those movies. I don't think there's that much campiness in those movies. Well, you just said the most popular ones out now. So mainstream maybe is less, mainstream horror is less campy. And Get Out, Us, neither yeah. of those are very campy either. That's mainstream. 
they're mainstream now mainstream horror right like i'm talking about b movies they're so campy they're like ridiculously campy and so maybe it's just split itself into like two different categories now more so than like blending a camp and kind of serious or popular films um but yeah no i i know what you're getting at but um I mean, I'm happy that it's like veered a little bit away from campiness, the mainstream stuff or like the newer horror that people seem to be interested in. Um, you almost have like the intellectual f- horror and like psychological thriller. And then you have like the Blumhouse, like really in your face meant to scare you. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's like the new version of the campy ones. Um, but I don't think any of those movies would be described as camping like campy like insidious or what was that one that we watched with ethan hawk in the super eight movies no i didn't say they are oh i'm okay. saying like that's like what people are into right now like yeah. that's the mainstream but maybe in the 70s and 80s mainstream was like this like horror campy comedy thing yeah yeah because i did, the other thing i read is that bob clark like heavily re- rewrote the script for black christmas to actually to do a few different things to leave the the killer unknown to have an ambiguous ending and then also to inject some humor into it. Yeah. So that was intentional. Yeah. Can we talk about the ending of this? I mean, yeah. Well, before we do that, it's interesting too, that movie made in 1974. So, you know, the Vietnam era is going on and, and America in some ways is still in its innocence. Like it's, 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 it's an awakening period, you know, that it's not like the doors slam shut. Uh, from all joy, like during the Reagan era, which comes a little bit later. Um, but it's interesting to think of the world that this was made into because inserting the humor, I mean, the Roy Moore is the writer of this movie and he's really only made black Christmas. Um, and it's interesting that they wanted to alleviate the bleakness of this movie because the movie actually is unlike, you gotta say even unlike Halloween, that this movie is bleaker than Halloween. That's true. Yeah. Related to like the environment that it was made in, that was another reason why I wanted to see this movie was because it's often cited in a lot of analyzing horror films that it's a pretty feminist film. It has like, it it's one of the first like final girl ones. She probably survives and we'll, we'll get to the ending in a second. No way. I don't know. Well, anyway, <clears throat> yeah, it has like feminist vibes and like, or that's what I was kind of, interested in seeing how they do it and it was a little bit less than i thought it would be the major thing is that like they tackle the topic of abortion the main character right yeah she is pregnant she has a slightly older boyfriend um she wants a career she's going to college to get a career they're going to some fancy pants yeah yeah um she decides she doesn't want to have the baby she wants to get an abortion the boyfriend kind of freaks out at her and is like, you're going to kill my baby kind of thing. And then the whole film, they make you think he's the killer. Um, and then I think like the subtext of that is like, he wants, you know, like he's the killer because she's trying to have an abortion and he doesn't want her to, but she's like, I'm not just going to marry you and give up my whole life so I can have children. Yeah, and she, that was she like, monologues about it. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's a huge like forward thinking thing and, I mean, even now, like... Made by a group of men. Made by a group of men. But, like, lots of, you know, that women in the cast. And, like, I I do wonder how much 
especially the lead had a say in like some of the things i don't know yeah maybe yeah. um i think the thing that disappointed me was like the characters are so archetypal like archetypes and like maybe not the best <laughs> reflection on women um so like in that way i don't think it's pretty feminist but it's probably because it's written by men and it's a different time but um yeah I, it's interesting i uh i agree yeah no, the movie is there's a couple of times where i felt like the movie was losing me in terms of its acting particularly their kind of like house mother she's really ridiculous all the way through yeah um <laughs> But yeah, getting to, to to the ending too. There's definitely like they're setting up as Kier Dwala as the the murderer. Um, you know, he's the you know would be concert pianist who kind of can't has a breakdown and and destroys his piano with a mic stand and um, is kind of stuff like he is the murderer, mm-hmm. but it's someone that we never see. And in that way, the movie does a really interesting thing of making you the murderer. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you know these the movie thinking about the world this movie came into is it like um have you ever seen um blowout um the uh brian de palma um john travolta movie no but i i'm familiar (laughs) um there's a whole sequence in the beginning of that movie uh not to mansplain this but uh there's a whole sequence in the beginning of that movie that's like a ripoff of essentially black christmas style it's like a murder you don't see it's all in the first person and there's just like tons of naked ladies getting mowed down <laughs> and John Travolta has done the sound design for this movie and they're trying to find a, a better scream and that's like what sets up the whole movie he's trying to find a better scream mm. um, for this shitty B movie he's working on and this movie when you watch it you're like oh my god this is so tropey like all these things like you're kind of seeing this creepy dude who's like observing them but this is like the first movie to do it and you kind of it, it makes you feel like you're because you know as you're watching this movie you're kind of like you're waiting for them to get killed and like there's not as much bloodshed in this movie as future slashers yeah like there's a lot of like time spent on the plot on the the ab- the abortion plot and the the like their relationship there's a lot of time spent yeah i actually really appreciate the a slasher film without a ton of gore and blood and like i like their kills like they're pretty creative the first one the first one's great yeah no even like the it's a little cheesy but the glass menagerie like oh stats yeah. that glass thing you don't see too much of it like you let your imagination figure out like what is going on i like that like letting your brain fill in the gaps yeah there's a lot of this movie that exists in your head mm-hmm. right yeah and that's really really interesting um, yeah, no, I I, I kind of like this movie. Do you have any final thoughts? Yeah, and then I think just two things related to the ending is it is one of, like, the big twist in this film doesn't feel like a twist anymore because it's been so done, but it's the whole, like, the caller is coming from inside the house. Like, the killer, in addition to killing people, is also, like, calling them and making, like, obscene uh, noises yeah. and also, like literally the audio of him like torturing killing the women which you like kind of piece together as it goes right so it's like pretty obvious that it's gonna be like 
we traced the call and we found that the killer is inside the house. And the tracing stuff is actually pretty cool because they're actually tracing the call, like following all these switchboards. It's really cool. I, yeah. I don't know. I like that. I like that part a lot. I was like, oh my God, they're literally tracing. All these mechanical. Yeah. Whatever. With wire. Yeah. yeah. It's cool. So like I could see that being a little mind blowing when it came out because that mm-hmm. was even this was this film was prior to When a Stranger Calls, which is another it's coming from in the house. But I think that that's even better because they Black Christmas like kind of gives you a lot more hints that it's happening from inside the house. And like when a stranger calls, you have no idea until it happens. I will say, yeah, I went into when I saw when a stranger calls, we watched together for the first time. As like a Walmart, like the first <laughs> yeah. one side of this disc is when a stranger calls. The other side of this disc is when a stranger calls. Two thousand six. That's right. Um, and like the first like half hour, like the essentially the opening act of when a stranger calls is terrifying. Mm-hmm. And because and I think what happened was and why they approved upon the Black Christmas thing is in Black Christmas they're just saying whatever bullshit on the phone and they added it all in in post to make it like creepy and sexual and kind of like whatever but in when a stranger calls it's like part of the plot in a really tangible Mm -hmm. way that like makes you even more freaked out yeah when a stranger calls a whole opening sequence yeah yeah here you go here here comes here comes a bold statement (laughs) um and if you're still with us on minute 17 you get to hear this bold statement tell your friends about the podcast by the way please um (laughs) Is that it? Is the that when the stranger calls. Stop. <laughs> I'm trying to use my brain hole. Um, the opening of when a stranger calls is only matched by raising Arizona in like its completeness of like doing exactly what it wants to do, but not being appreciated as like some of the greatest moments in cinema history. Because mm. the whole opening thing of raising Arizona, like the all the yodeling bit where he goes in and out of prison just to like hook up with Francis McDormand, brilliant. Or Holly Hunter. I don't know. I only saw it once. Okay, but yeah, but I'm less familiar. Yeah. But yeah, um, I'll I'll buy it. I'll I'll buy what you're putting down. And uh, the ending of this movie is com- Black Christmas. It's completely bleak. She dies. I hate to break it to you, <laughs> Juliet dies. Uh, you don't know. Like they just left her in a room, unconscious by herself, with a and killer the in the came attic. Down the, from the at the end. We don't know if he came down. We do know he came down. Maybe. Yeah. Well, no, I, I do like this ending, and you're right. It probably she dies, but it's nice to like she makes <laughs> nice, nice for it to be a little ambiguous because like she makes it out, you think everything's fine, and then you're like, oh wait, the killer's still out there, and we don't know who he is, and will he kill her while everyone else is leaving her alone for some stupid reason? Also, the, it kind of also shows a, a a difference in our society of like 1970s to now is they were really really okay with asking a lot of questions of the audience and not answering them at the end who is this guy mm-hmm. who's murdering them or woman i think it's a guy who's this person killing them she straight up murdered Kirdawala because she yeah. thought he was the murderer that's true and it all happens off screen we yep. don't see him struggle but she murdered the shit out of him that part is the scariest part of the whole movie is when she goes into the basement i'm like Something about basements. They're always creepy, no matter what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. And I wonder if uh, Jonathan Demme watched this, had seen this movie when he did the basement sequence of Silence of the Lands, because they're kind of mm. similar in, yeah. a, in a weird way. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. there's also that. Also, you know, Kier Dwall is not the murderer because it's never from his POV in that ending sequence. 
Oh, yeah. That's a good point. But yeah, I mean, this movie was a little underwhelming in terms of everything we've heard about it. However, I do sort of recommend it. I think it's a classic and like, it's good to see the parts that they do really, really well. And yeah, it's just, a, it's a, not a bad watch. Yeah. And that, that history of horror movie I was talking, or history of horror TV uh, book I was reading is called Lost in the Dark by Brad Weissman. It's a really, really good one. We have a mailbag question. Get your hand off that trigger. <laughs> okay. Who's our mail question from? Miss, Mr. Henry Harrison. Um, uh, what is the best way to overcome writer's block? This has nothing to do with the horror films, Harry. Well, he probably wrote it when... You know, in August or something. He doesn't know this is a spooky season? Doesn't know it's spooky season. How to overcome writer's block? Mm-hmm. Just write. Yeah. <laughs> you write, could give write a more like, positive write like, answer. Write like no one's watching. Um, I think it's important just to write. Give yourself, uh, you know, my my uh, rainy day thing to write about is when, if like I can't write about anything else, just write about something in somebody else's world. It just lets you get dialogue out. It lets you get ideas out. You know, what else went on on this planet? Yeah. You could also, like, look up a writing prompt online or AI will provide writing prompts. Yeah, and ChatGPT is good for that. You know, yeah, like, like, you could just get a, a scenario and then write a quick little thing about that scenario and not have any pressure about it, what it needs to be or what it's for and just write something, whatever, silly or yeah. whatever this, you want. And Sarah Silverman said is like write like the worst possible scene you possibly can. And that's like how she breaks writer's block. That's a good one. I like that. Um, I will say that, uh, and this will help me as a nerd. I think it's important to like writing is like any sort of activity you do that's mental, physical. It helps if you do it on the regular. Like you know you can't expect to like deadlift three hundred pounds if you're not working up to it in the gym, right? So if you want to write, you got to practice writing you can't just do yeah. it all at one day right every day even if it's bad some days it's caca. nothing <laughs> yes. sorry to use that such language i know i'm offended personally yeah, yeah we should uh this is an explicit <laughs> episode um <laughs> well, all right well, well so i uh, like to play that outro music so, you, know, whenever uh, you, you're know, ready, you know keep keep writing keep, st- keep writing that chicken <laughs> So uh, this has been Famous Last Words. Uh, Teresa's passed out. Um, my name's Andrew. I'm Teresa. <laughs> Happy Halloween. Happy spooky season. <laughs>